Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, in which we explore a funny blooper or mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And sometimes wrong meanings arise because of incorrect word order or the tone of one's voice, even in one's native language. So for example, an American man told his neighbor that the police came last night to tell him that his dogs were chasing people on bikes, which is odd because his dogs don't even have bikes. So with that, I'd like to introduce our guest today who runs a most amazing nonprofit in Ethiopia. Her name is Eden Tadese, and she is a social entrepreneur, an award-winning journalist, and a digital innovator from Ethiopia, as I said. She brings more than 10 years of experience in the nonprofit and the technology industry sectors across three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. As a proud nonconformist and global citizen, Eden strives to empower youth to cultivate their digital skills, develop success habits, and unlock their inner potential. She is the founder of Invicta, an award-winning social impact platform that connects refugees and internally displaced youth, I'm sorry, and internally displaced youth with online courses, skills development training, and remote work opportunities. So Eden, welcome. I'm delighted that you've joined us. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. It's great to be here. So Eden is our first um, guest who runs a nonprofit, and we probably have, will have many others as well. Uh, but since her, inter, her, her not, excuse me, her nonprofit is very international and works with um, refugees, as I said, I thought um, her experience is equally as valid as any private sector business. And it's important to note um, that a nonprofit, as we would say in American English and British English, they're, probably, they're most likely called NGOs. A nonprofit uh, is a business just under a different kind of format, a different kind of stack, tax structure. But a nonprofit still is a business with the same issues that other businesses have, whether in accounting or uh, with HR, marketing, uh, revenue, whatever the case may be implementing the product or the mission, whatever. So uh, before we dive in, uh, could you please tell us a bit more about your own background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience and what brought you into Invicta? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Eden and I'm 25 years old, uh, born and raised in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I spent the first 18 years of my life um, in Ethiopia, and then I received a full scholarship to study IT in India. So at the time, I was very much obsessed with uh, the IT industry and also the culture of India. So it was very obvious for me that I would be that I would see a future there. And once I yeah, once I finished high school, I applied. And once I got my scholarship, I was fortunate to go to, to India to study my my bachelor's degree. And while I was in India, I got to um, specialize in, in cybersecurity, which was also a huge passion of mine. But yeah, but even also before that, so I had a, a quite interesting background. So 
um, I attended the top private school in, in the country, in Ethiopia. But at the same time, I was um, living in the poorest part of the country. So I grew up in the slums. I grew up with 11 other siblings. And um, I grew up also in a super patriarchal society. And the reason how this came to be is because my father was actually the head of finance at my at the school that I attended. Therefore, the school enabled him to um, enroll all his children, so me and all my siblings, at the school free of tuition. So we never had to pay tuition, and the school even went above and beyond to support us in our in our health and with every other thing possible. So um, we got an amazing experience, my siblings and I, attending the school um, from kindergarten all the way up to grade thirteen. And once I finished, um, yeah, once I finished high school, I was exploring some opportunities to study abroad. But for me, it was very obvious that I would go to India. So I was exploring the different cities in India, um, and I was looking at where the 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 big tech companies are located because I also wanted to, you know, get a job after after college. Um, and yeah, so it was also. Um, something that I had wanted for a long time to go abroad and to make my impact in the world, to travel, to meet new people, to launch my own business. And India was really my launching pad for that. Um, and I was very, very fortunate to, to be raised by two amazing parents who supported my growth and my career ambitions at a very young age. I had a very uh, strict but loving and super nurturing father who um, raised me and my, you know, my sisters to be extremely tough uh, and resilient and hardworking individuals or, you know, um, yeah, to be very productive members of society. Since we were very young, he would get us enrolled in many, many different activities. And he would also encourage us to volunteer as much as possible to, to do sports, to um, get a paying job, to network with different people. So I got my first paying job when I was very young and that kind of fast-tracked my career, mine and my siblings as well. Uh, and so that also gave me a taste and a taste of international business, working with different international organizations in Ethiopia at a very young age um, and just having that desire and that thirst to learn more and to be part of, you know, more, dif uh, more programs in different countries. Um, and I also call myself a multi-potentialite, which is someone who doesn't have one single calling in life. We wear many different hats. We have different skills and interests and uh, that for me is very true since I've been involved or I've worked in many different sectors and I have uh, projects across all domains. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of um, a bit about my upbringing. And um, when I was in India also, I had the opportunity to go to Europe, which was interesting because, you know, when you work in India for some time, um, it's a completely different experience from working in Africa or rather Ethiopia. Um, you know, in India, they have a super, super um, strict working uh, life and, and also in the education space as well. Like they're very, they're very strict about that and they take things very seriously and they have a huge respect for, for their teachers, for their employers. Um, mm -hmm. And so introduced me to a completely new business culture. Um, and when I went to Europe as well, it was completely different, but I noticed that I was, I felt more um, genuine. I mean, I felt more myself um, 
when I went to Europe, just meeting many different young people who were like me and uh, accepted me for my beliefs and my and what I could contribute, my values, my passion, my purpose. So I really felt like I belonged there. So I stayed there. So I mean, I kept traveling between India and Europe for about two years and a half. And then once I graduated um, from India, I um, actually yeah, I went back to Europe again, and then from Europe I went to back to Ethiopia. So that that was um, around the start of the pandemic. Oh wow! So it's all very, very recent. A lot of this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what motivated you to start uh, to start your your NGO nonprofit? Yeah, so um, when I was studying in India, like after completing my freshman year, um, I noticed that, um, well, actually, I heard through a UN press conference that Africa was experiencing the worst refugee crisis in history, and the world was experiencing the third largest refugee crisis in, um, in history. So this was the year 2016, and all around the media was um, articles on Donald Trump's presidential win, um, ISIS, uh, the terrorist group, and um, Islamophobic attacks across the UK and US. And there was just like very minimal media coverage on the refugee crisis, both in Africa and in the Middle East. And I found this extremely disheartening. And so I, I did more research and it turns out that the, there was actually a civil war happening in South Sudan that led 2 million South Sudanese to flee to neighboring countries. And many of them were fleeing into um, Ethiopia because, you know, we're a big country in the Horn of Africa. We have an open door policy. They're pretty good conditions for refugees from across Africa and the rest of the world. So, um, you know, these countries were welcoming refugees, but at the same time, they were extremely um overwhelmed like they didn't have the capacity to support refugees with for example education or employment like they were barely um, keeping up with the with the influx of refugees because the communities that the refugees were coming into were extremely rural and low income and they didn't really have the backing of the government and ngos at the time now they do but you know back then there just wasn't expected at all that um, so many refugees would come in and um yeah, into such uh, low-income parts of the country. So reading all of that, it broke my heart. And I said, you know, why am I studying abroad in this prestigious private university when there's a human crisis going on, basically? And I felt called upon to, to go back home. Actually, for me, home is earth. Like, I don't feel tied to any particular country. But I knew that, you know, being an Ethiopian and having an Ethiopian passport, it would be most realistic for me to go there and to support so that's exactly what I did. I asked, uh, I spoke to the university and I asked them if it was possible for me to take a gap year. And gap year is something that's very frowned upon in African culture and also in Asian culture as well. Like you don't tell anyone that you're, I mean, you just, they don't accept it. Like it's, it's very, very frowned upon. They, you, unless you're having like, you know, a very serious medical emergency or something. You shouldn't be taking a time off school, especially your uh, university years. And um, they couldn't understand why I tried to explain it to them. And they said, like, you know, it's fine. You know, you could go back to your country. But when you come back, you're, um, you won't have a full scholarship anymore. We'll have to revoke uh, the scholarship and we'll give your position to someone else, which was heartbreaking for me because I couldn't afford the tuition. And I wanted to, you know, I started this course. I'm going to finish it. So uh, I spoke to them. We negotiated. And the agreement was that I will take a gap year. 
my scholarship will not be revoked because um, when I come back, I will have to sit through all the different exams and, the, and do the courses and get the course credits that I missed during the year that I was uh, abroad. And at the time, it seemed like, you know, nothing is more important to me than this refugee crisis. So I have to go back home uh, or I have to go back to East Africa and support and what in support in any way that I can. But uh, yeah, and so that's exactly what I did. So you started Invicta and then you've continued it, but have you then gone back after your gap year to finish your degree? Or are you still doing the gap? No, no, yeah, I, I took a gap year. I went back to, um, I went back to Ethiopia, like the southern part of Ethiopia, where a lot of the refugees were living in, and I stayed there for a year. Mm. Um, and I, while I was there, I met with this uh, Ethiopian who was also living in a host community, and she was kind enough to, um, to want to support refugees. Um, financially but she didn't know how and so I I spoke to many of them and I actually initially had gone there to support them with education thinking that you know that was where the gap was that was what I really needed to support them with mm. um, but it turns out that they are extremely overeducated. they have um, for the jobs available they were extremely overqualified even they had uh, their masters their PhD they were lawyers they were professors oh. engineers um, they were bilingual trilingual very, very highly talented and skilled people. And so what they were what they were looking for was actually access to the labor markets and a chance for them to utilize their skills. Mm -hmm. So I said, um, you know, at the time, the government didn't have policies in place for refugee employment. Now they do. But back then it, was, uh, it wasn't there at all. And so refugees had to wait years to get a work permit and be recognized as citizens or just be have their asylum applications accepted. So um, I said to myself, you know, remote work is a billion dollar industry and I've worked as a freelancer for many years. So why don't they, and what, that's one option for them to really uh, earn income online. And they were also able to receive and transfer money. So they had the infrastructure, they just didn't have the skills and the knowledge. So um, me and the woman that I met at the camp, we set up a learning resource center where we were able to support refugees um, with digital literacy, professional development, skills development, and it was a very fulfilling time, probably the best, one of the best years of my life. And um, yeah, it was also very sad for me to, to say goodbye and to have to leave at the end of the year. Uh, but the center is still, still um, continuing and more and more people are being enrolled and trained and educated. So it became like the sustainable and scalable business model that we had, that even if I leave or any of the other instructors leave, could continue because the refugees who've trained with me and trained with uh, the other Ethiopians there, um, have the knowledge and have the experience to train other refugees to to continue, um, you know, to improve their CV, for example, or to learn how to become a freelancer, to to enroll in different online courses and build their career profiles that way. So um, yeah, it was a really interesting and meaningful meaningful project. Um, but once I went back to India um, and I graduated with my degree in cybersecurity, mm. I said, um, you know, I I wanted. I want to work with refugees again, and, and this time I want it to be global. So I want to be able to support refugees around the world. It's amazing. What an incredible background and great story. Um, Thank you. So, so currently, Invicta primarily serves refugees from which countries? And then you match them with online jobs into which other countries? 
Yes, so we work with refugees and internally displaced youth from um, more than 80 countries around the world, mostly in Africa, Europe, uh, the Middle East, but also in Russia and South America, um, Russia, I mean, Asia, uh, and in South America as well. Um, the top countries um, are Syria, uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Iraq, Germany, Egypt, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Netherlands, Russia, Morocco, Algeria, Hungary. So maybe these are the top countries that we um, that refugees on our platform are based in or are living in. Um, and then we work with businesses also in, in UAE because there are many, many um, agencies that hire, creative agencies that hire freelancers online. There are many companies in Turkey as well, uh, countries in, in Lebanon, um, and then Australia, Norway, Germany. Um, and now we are branching out and we are seeking to work more closely with um, Af NGOs in Africa, across Africa. So it's very international. That's fascinating and truly is international. Um, so Invicta started in Ethiopia, but that you've, you have branches in Latin America and Asia and Europe and elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah, so we are a remote startup. Um, so we work with refugees and companies around the world. Um, our goal is to be operational in every refugee hosting country in the world. So that's almost every country in the world by um, 2023. So next year, it's quite an ambitious goal. But we've, um, I mean, we've, uh, we've, we've been working in many, many different countries. Um, but where we haven't been working a lot is South America. And um, as you know, there's a, a really bad political situation happening right now in Brazil and Venezuela and Bolivia. Yeah. And uh, due to that, there's uh, many, many young people who are being displaced in the continent, um, even in the millions. So um, that's something we we've, uh, we know and that we understand is happening um, at a very alarming rate. So we want to um, start working more closely with NGOs to source refugees who are looking for the services that we provide remotely. That's truly fantastic and remarkable. Um, Thank you. As you've worked with people all over the world, surely you've noticed differences in business culture. Let's start with business cultures first. So perhaps um, the refugees' expectations of the way the way business operates, and then um, you connect them with, I don't know, a company, say, in, in Lebanon or in Germany, whatever, and the business culture is very different. So can you give us some examples of um, the refugees' expectations, perhaps, of business cultures, and then the reality that they confront and how they have managed to bridge the gap to, uh, to, to work in these other countries remotely? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the refugees that we work with, um, I would say the majority of them um, have never worked remotely before. So that's something that we give them training on once we assess that they are the right, they are the suitable candidates for the roles. Um, then we, um, we give them training like on the job training. And then we also give them orientation of their host companies. And this is really where like the cultural and the business uh, training really kicks in for them. They're able because it's the you know the organizational culture is different in every company. So we try to really understand our clients' needs at the beginning, and then we try to um, 
um, help the refugees understand that as best as they as they can. So I think their initial expectation for them is um, the way that they engage with us, for example, which is you know um, directly either through WhatsApp or or, or through email um, to to be given a strict instru instruction like um, this is the project that we need um, you to, to do. This is the the timeline that we have set, the budget. Um, these are the deliverables. So if you have any questions, this is the email. So it's very clear cut, and this is kind of their expectation going in. So very low expectation. Uh, but a lot of the companies that we match them with are very diverse, like they have their fully distributed teams around the world. Um, they have a very fun and, and engaging company culture. And um, it's not always about the work for them. They really want to get to know their employees, even if they're, you know, they're just freelancers. They um, want to make them feel appreciated for the work they're doing. And so a lot of the calls that they have, um, sometimes they just want to get to know the refugees that they're working with about their story and how they, you know, they came to know all these different languages or, you know, what their hopes and aspirations are. So it becomes a very personal relationship. And that's something that we we really admire, um, something that cultivates um, great motivation and curiosity amongst the refugees and the companies as well. So they really bond over that. And um, I think the refugees and uh, the companies and our and um, and Invicta as well. We really take a lot from that experience, and we you know we try to create a very positive and supportive working environment. Um, yeah, so I would say probably these are this is um, how it usually is. Are there are there cases where the refugee, for example, time, very major issue? Um, I've lived in Africa, so there. So there's something called Africa time, which basically is much slower um, than, say, American time, which is much more precise. And people get um, frenetic here if you're not, you know, if you're two minutes late or something. Um, so do you do you have these kinds of issues with um, just totally different expectations of the work environment? Uh, that yeah, again, yeah, just the, the work environment in general and how that has posed. Uh, challenges to your to to the refugees. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, there are many, um, when it comes to cultural differences, there are lots of things that crop up, many challenges here and there. And you just have to, first, you have to acknowledge that it's something that, um, you know, needs to be addressed if it's a problem. And I think um, the challenges or the hiccups that we've seen amongst between refugees and companies is um, when it comes to communication. So I think we, you know, uh, the refugees who um, we support and we train and that we work with are very, uh, have a great work ethic and are very professional. Mm. Um, but I think in terms of communication, it's completely diff different in many different cultures. Yeah. Um, there's also a great book about this called The Cult Culture Map. And um, it just shows how diverse um, the expectations and the realities are in many parts of the world. Um, and so we've had situations where, you know, the refugees are, are working on the projects um, from the get go, you know, they, they find the, the, the they understand the objective very, very well. And they understand that there's a timeline for that. So um, they'd say to themselves, okay, I'm gonna, maybe I'll do like 20% until, you know, the deadline is almost there. And then, you know, once the, the deadline, once there's like a, a week or so before the deadline, that's when they really are motivated to like do the bulk of the work. Because in their mind, they're thinking like, as long as I get it done to the best of my ability or to the client's expectations, then it shouldn't be any problem. Um, so they don't communicate that as well, like um, the way that they're able to, you know, um, 
create like their different time management process and how they're able to organize themselves to be productive. And from the company side as well, um, a lot of companies, especially when they're working with freelancers on a project-based um, situation, they like to check in with the freelancers a lot and they like to, you know, cause they're paying by the hour. So they like to check in quite frequently and say like, Hey, where are you now? Where are you at right now? Do you need any support? Um, is there anything that we can provide you? Do you mind sending us a demo of the work that you've done so far? Would you mind meeting so-and-so member of the team? And, and so it's a lot of the times from the client side, there's these, there's like a great need to, to communicate regularly. Um, but from the refugee side, they, they really, a lot of them are not very um, excellent at the communication skills or they don't see it as important as uh, the client does. So there are some blunders there. Um, and I mean, it doesn't really lead to anything bad. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of um, acknowledging that this is a, a gap or a hiccup and um, coming to terms with it and addressing it in a healthy and positive way. And that's usually what happens, um, you know, once the client makes it clear that um, you know, we expect so-and-so updates from the project because we want to, you know, we want to know where you are. We want to support you. Then um, the refugees are very understanding of that and they're able to work at a, a much greater speed and uh, be able to communicate that. And then they see the benefit of, of that as well. So that's usually where the, the challenges are. It's remarkable. It's fascinating. Um, I know that you've had a personal difficulty, shall we say politely, um, being a woman and having to confront um, gender issues, both in, in Africa primarily. Uh, can you give us some examples of some of those issues that you confronted and how you dealt with them? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I've had many um, near-death experiences, unfortunately, in my life, um, both in Ethiopia and abroad as well, even in Europe. Um, I actually even wrote a, a book about this called Rebellion. Uh, it's actually just an ebook, but it's um, supposed to guide young young people, especially women, uh, on how to avoid very, very bad situations in life, how to be more self-aware, how to be more alert, um, and how to be more compassionate with themselves after such, um, you know, these scary experiences happen. Some of them are things that happen not to me but to other people as well so i'll give an example of one which is the earthquakes that i experienced when i was living in northern india which, uh, to the border with pakistan and the earthquakes were actually happening in pakistan but i lived very close to the border um so you felt like the aftershock of the uh, of the event and it was very it was very very intense um and i remember once i think once in 2018 um pakistan had like one of the the largest um earthquakes i think it was like seven on the richter scale it was really bad and so um very intense as well and i remember being in a, in a classroom when it happened it was just in the middle of the day nobody had expected it but you know they did give us training but it was just so strong that um, at no point did I think that I was going to survive that. Not just me, but of course my classmates as well and my professors. But the Indians, I feel like they're much more, the Indians that live there, they're much more prepared because they experience these shocks a few times a year. Uh, but me, especially in Ethiopia, because there aren't um, any natural disasters where I grew up. So it was very, very scary. I think that was the third one that I had experienced, but that one was the most serious. And um, yeah, just coming face to face with death was a um, terrifying experience, but also enlightening in many ways. 
Um, it's so true that what they say that your life flashes before your eyes and yeah. um, the thing that matters most to you come front and center in your brain. So yeah, that was a very an eye-opening situation. Um, and then there was also a time, <coughs> sorry, when I was um, kidnapped in Ethiopia when I was, I think maybe 15 or 16 years old with my younger sister. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was also a really bad experience. I got out of that experience. I wasn't hurt, thank God. Um, but it was probably one of the most scariest, you know, uh, two or three hours of my life where we were kidnapped and we were taken to an abandoned forest um, in the northern part of my city. And I had actually gotten out of that situation by remembering a post I had read on Quora. So Quora is like a forum where people get to ask uh, questions to the community and the community gives answers. And I remember reading this amazing story about this woman who was able to um, to save herself from her deranged stalker. Mm. He had been following her everywhere. She doesn't know him, but he was just following her obsessively. And then one day uh, he made his way into her house while she was just cooking and putting the baby to sleep. There was no one else in the house. And so when she walked into her living room, he was just sitting there and he was, I mean, he was probably also a bit psychotic because he, he didn't react to her seeing him in her house. He just stood there. I mean, he was just sitting on the couch acting normal. And she remembered something that her mother had told us, told her when she was young about, um, you know, surviving these crazy situations with, um, with stalkers. So um, she pretended to have Stockholm syndrome. And when she saw him, she didn't panic at all. She recognized him, of course. And she said, um, hey, it's great to see you. And uh, why don't you... Um, what, what, should I get you something from the kitchen? Why don't you stay here and I'll make you a cup of coffee and so on. And he was just a bit baffled by this, but he didn't say anything. And so she basically pretended like she wanted him there and that she was glad to have him there just to keep him calm. And he didn't want her out of his sight, but eventually she had convinced him. And once um, he told her like, okay, yeah, get me something to drink. She went to the kitchen very carefully and then she called the cops um, and she explained the situation to them and they were able to come. But she, she, she noted in her Cora post that the moment between her calling the cops and the cops actually arriving at her house was one of the most scariest moments of her life because she, um, you know, she was pretending to be something she's not and mm. saying these things to him made her feel very, you know, disgusted in herself, basically. And she had a baby sleeping in, in one of the bedrooms. So also terrified what would happen to him if anything um went astray so um thank god it had a happy ending the cops showed up in time they were able to arrest him and take him to jail but um reading her story really really um inspired me and it just stayed with me you know and i never ever thought of course that i would have such a similar situation but uh you know it turned out that i did when i was kidnapped and i uh, I was with my younger sister, as I had said, and, you know, in hindsight, she was acting much more smarter than I was because from the get go, she was feeling very fishy about the situation. She said, you know, why are we taking a, a ride from these strangers? We don't even know them. And, you know, when they had stopped in an abandoned forest, that's when she, she really said, like, we have to get out of here. And once they started saying like very inappropriate things to us, we, she opened the door, like she barged the door and, um, she was able to run and to the middle of nowhere, basically 
she just disappeared and there were two guys there was one driving and one in the back and the guy in the back wanted to run after her but the drivers are like no no leave her alone so it was just at some point it was just the three of us and um, he said like yeah you know it's fine leave her we'll just go the three of us to my home and I said like yeah that sounds perfect but you know um, why don't I just quickly go and find my sister because you know if I don't then my father will kill me and so on and somehow I was able to convince him I mean we argued a lot but at the end I convinced him and I said like you know if you don't trust me just you know follow me with your van I'm not gonna run and there's no way to run to and he was like oh fine and then he let me go and I was yeah I carefully went out of the car and I just started yelling her name and she saw me but she also saw the van following me uh so she didn't say anything and then and got to a point where in the very uh, far distance we could see some people and a bus and so uh, I saw her shadow behind a huge dumpster and I just ran towards her. I grabbed her and we just went towards the the car. Uh, I mean, the, the bus and the people were able to see us at that point running and they were wondering what's going on. And that's when the van, you know, took a detour and then they just disappeared from there on and we never got to see them again. So that's uh, another really crazy thing that had happened to me. And in the book, I mentioned this story and what I learned from it and how other women, you know, in case they find themselves in these situations, how they can um, escape these situations, but also even if they don't and something bad happens to them, don't worry and have self-compassion and emotional resilience and you will get, you will overcome anything. Oh, it's remarkable. Most people have never been kidnapped before. It's pretty astonishing. This was in Ethiopia, right? Yes, in Addis Ababa. Amazing. Um, Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Uh, Cultural experiences or uh, cultural issues or business issues or anything? um, Anything else that you'd like to to add? Yeah, I think... um... You know, now I think remote work has really changed the way a lot of organizations around the world are embracing um, are embracing work, and it's um, it's something you know we are navigating in a technology driven era. And so, while companies take a positive shift towards remote work, I think it's also uh, good for them. If you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a business owner or you plan to be a business owner um, consider hiring refugees they are extremely resilient extremely talented people and um, you know they've lived in many countries they have a wide range of cultural and business experiences um, so they really are a huge asset to any business that they join and um, and yeah nowadays companies are looking for very you know multi-talented multi-skilled people who speak many languages um, and can and can bring that diversity to the organization, to the workforce. And so this is my message to, to anyone out there who's in international business or seeking to get into international business is to always remember just to um, diversify your workforce and what better way than to hire uh, resilient refugees because re- refugees are always resili- resilient. So that's my yeah. final words of, yeah. Final words of wisdom. And that yeah. it's extremely true. As you say, um, you know, refugees have been through life experiences that most people can't imagine and certainly don't want to imagine. Um, but it's uh, it's horrible. And to survive, you have to be resilient and you have to, you know, very much uh, go with the flow and change, you know, change on a dime almost, you know, Absolutely. just immediately um, and just adjust to situations and 
figure out how to cope and the best way to, best way forward. And they yes. are extremely resilient because there is no other choice. And uh, having no other choice very much is a, is a great motivator in many situations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, exactly. thank you. It's been a superb pleasure gaining your insights and your wisdom with all of this. Um, this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business. 